John Roderick. We speak to you from our present, which we can only assume is your distant past, the turbulent time that was the early 21st century. Fearing the great cataclysm that will surely befall our civilization, we began this monumental reference of strange and obscure human knowledge. These recordings represent our attempt to compile and preserve wonders and esoterica that would otherwise be lost. So whether you're listening from an advanced civilization or have just reinvented the technology to decrypt our transmissions, this is our legacy to you. This is our time capsule. This is the Omnibus. have accessed entry 088.mk1472 certificate number 36846 the Bader meinhof phenomenon a lot of people don't realize what's really going on they view life as a bunch of unconnected incidents and things they don't realize that there's this like lattice of coincidence that lays on top of everything wow If you're listening to these entries in the order recorded, we just learned about, you just heard about the Bader-Meinhof gang for the first time, what, five days ago? Yeah. That was, that was our show last week. And now suddenly they've come up again. People are going to get confused because if they're speed readers, they're going to say, wait, I've already listened to this episode. Good. Yeah. Let let them miss out. (laughs) Only you, the special people are listening. The ones that read the entire show description. Unless you're using some podcast app that cuts off after 14 characters or something. And <laughs> I'm then sure you, they, they all do that. Then you will be very confused. <laughs> uh, well, that's kind of appropriate for this particular topic. You hearing again about something you just learned about before. That's at the heart of, of this entry. I, 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 I'm not familiar with the Bader-Meinhof phenomenon. That was, Is it- that was just the name of my fan club that I started for the Bader-Meinhof group. <laughs> it was a cover band. We're the Bader-Meinhof phenomenon. <laughs> Thank you, Dusseldorf. Is it uh, is it a phenomenon where you uh, become you, you become imprisoned and then die mysteriously of a gunshot? Uh, where it's it's uh, ruled a suicide. I think that's the Ghislaine Maxwell phenomenon. Oh, that's, right, right, right. that's a different uh, phenomenon. Right. Let me start this out this way by asking you this: you you told me recently that you do not read much fiction, or you have not read much fiction lately. I used to read exclusively fiction. You know, I was a, I was a, a lover of of prose, fiction prose, and then I Jack London. You grew up reading. I your, did your Alaskan frontier adventures. I did. I knew all the I knew all the poems, and then I became. You know, in college, I started to study history, and I started to read more nonfiction. And then I don't know what happened. I think it was the Martin Amos years of like British cool kid fiction that just ejected me from the whole game. And, and it wasn't that I didn't like those books. I, I read them, but... Martin Amos is very funny. Yeah, I just sort of didn't... I, maybe it was I didn't like the tone of the of the culture that surrounded that. You didn't like you didn't like literary fiction moving across the Atlantic? You wanted a more American voice? No, no, no. I, I like British fiction too, but no, it was... I think it was hipster, mm. postmodern, 
um, Brett Easton Ellis. Yeah, that stuff that I just sort of was like, oh, I, I don't want to be confined to just w- reading William James, but and I don't want to have to read Slaughterhouse Five again and again. But I also, I'm, I'm just not, I'm not making it all the way through to the New Yorker's bestseller of 2016. Why do you ask? You still read fiction. Hey, we uh, at my house the other night. You borrowed. Did you read it? I, I lent you A Dog of the South I by loved Charles it. Portis. Yeah, although it felt like a novel that was just sort of, uh, it was a novel to read on an airplane, right? It didn't feel like a novel that... It didn't feel important? It didn't feel earth-shattering, and that was actually good for me as a creative person to read a book that wasn't trying to be... Uh, it's not well, the great American novel, Yeah, it wasn't sure. trying to win a Pulitzer Prize. It was just a book that uh, that told a story that was... Artful and Portis is very funny. Great, great characterization. He's a real American original. His voice is not like if you've seen the Cone Brothers True Grit. I don't know. I can't remember how much of the narration is in the um, the John Wayne one. But if you've seen the Cone Brothers True Grit, you kind of know his off kilter, folksy American voice. Yeah, and it's it's comedy, sort of like Confederacy of Dunces is comedy. Yes, where through a series uh, through a series of, of weirdos. Right? Yeah, right. You're you're meant to. Uh, you're meant to go on a on a little trip with some people that you might not true, like. True eccentrics. <laughs> oh, I'm glad you read it, but you need to give it back to me. You can't keep my book. Really? I love that book. You're one of those people. That was not a gift. Okay. You're one of those people that thinks a Lent book is kind of a open-ended. No, what I did was I wrote in the inside cover, uh, read by John Roderick on... <laughs> Ex-Libris, uh, uh, <laughs> John Roderick. And then I left it in a, in a laundromat. <laughs> it's like a chick tract to uh-huh. you. Uh, I read almost exclusively fiction. Which I think, I think reading facty stuff makes me feel like I'm on the clock. Like, like do, do you, I have to be learning about the Civil War now. Come on, I'm trying you, to go to bed. Do you read the Times Literary Supplement and try to read contemporary fiction, or do you like read? A, uh, do you go back? I I read short. I like short stories because yeah, I have a short attention span. But I tend to read them in collections instead short of instead the, of in the magazine. They're the peak of the of the form, I think, of fiction. I love short stories. I do too, but I really do think I'm doing it wrong by reading a full book of like I read, uh, you know, a collection of Patricia Highsmith short stories, and I did not enjoy the thirtieth one as much as I enjoyed the first one. I gotta say, like, like maybe I should be reading them in the New Yorker, re- like reading the fourth book of the the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy series. It's no longer like you're no longer rolling on the floor. Yeah, it's I, I need the novelty. I think, uh, but I do have a I have a real weakness for the. The big book, the the masterpiece, you know, the yeah. opposite of a dog in the south, like the Moby Dick or the uh, Brothers Karamazov, like the book that feels like it contains all of human experience in it. <laughs> you seem like one of the few people that's read the Gulag Archipelago. Have you read it, all I, three volumes? I have, but I think it was for a class. I don't think I can take any credit for what that. What kind of class would ask you to read that <laughs> that, that, that tome? Uh, have you read Carl? Have you read Carl Ove the whole thing? I am on book four of what's it called? Mein Kampf, my, 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 my struggle. Yes. And have you? And and you know what? That's exactly why I got into that book. I was like, this is a project. I can feel like I'm climbing a mountain while I get through this guy's twenties and thirties. Is it a book that you're reading whilst also reading other books? Yeah, I'm a big time. Do you do this? Do you have yeah. like six books in parallel? Yeah, yeah I, me my, too. Uh, when I was in my 20s and 30s, my bed always had four books in it, all open to different places that I would like, you know, if I had a friend over, I'd have to sweep all these half open books onto the floor. Because otherwise they'd think you were a nerd. Well, no, because it was, it, you know, because there was, it was a passionate moment and it was not, <laughs> I wasn't going to sit and put bookmarks in them all. I'm not a nerd. I uh, make a big gesture like, get these books out of here. 
It wouldn't happen in the throes of passion. You wouldn't be like, hey, you're, you're squishing my Robert Heinlein. <laughs> you're squishing um, a Chapter House Dune or whatever. No, I'd do a thing. I'd do the old, uh, like, like flip the sheet like I was doing a, a magic a, trick. The old magic trick, and the books would go flying, and whoever my paramour was would go, oh my God, you're so, you're just so radical. That's uh, right, baby. Mindy tends to have a b- bunch of books going at the same time, but she never finishes any of them. Whereas I have all the books in the air, but I am dogged about finishing even a book i don't like does she not finish them because she gets five sixths of the way yeah, through she moves into the i think she gets more excited about the next book she doesn't often. but she's not like reading it halfway and then and then just Ooh, not where following she, it where through. does she drop out i don't know i should text her because if you go if you go i think, she often, the, I think she, she often drills in and fails to get purchase in a book i see and then she feels like she should continue because like, i got to give this guy more than 30 pages but She's not feeling it. that. Seems reasonable to me. If 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 you can't be grabbed, you should get out then. And I also feel like if you get to the denouement and don't want to just wander around with these people after the bomb has gone off, yeah, you, you don't have to. I mean, you don't have to do anything. But I know what you're saying about. I mean, when I read Infinite Jest, you actually read Infinite I, Jest. I wasn't gonna. I mean, I wasn't gonna be defeated by that book. I was going to fight, 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 and. uh you know, I I made it there. I have done that with like I've never read Ulysses, but I did that with Gravity's Rainbow. Just pushing through a book that I was like, I am going to say I finished this damn book, and I have no idea what's happening. Gravity's in this book. Rainbow took me months, and at one point, I think I was reading the book in four places simultaneously because I got to the middle and was like, oh, now I need to go back to the beginning and start again. Now that I understand what the heck that was, and then I got three quarters of the way book and had to go uh, three quarters of the way through and had to go back to the middle. And also was still reading it from the front, all all <laughs> just to try and put it, you know, to put it's a every, four dimensional uh, reading experience. It was, and then finally, when you get to the when you when you get to the tail end of it, you kind of you, you're sailing. But I I I really really wanted to take Thomas Pynchon out behind the woodshed and kick him. The funny thing is, I think I've read since then. I've read every one of his other novels and actually never had that experience again. I actually enjoy his other books. They're all great. They're all the small ones are great. <laughs> the small ones. <laughs> that should be a collection. Pinching the small ones. I do like big b- books. I mean, I I feel like technology's broken my brain a little to the degree that, um, like, I do want a more readable book now. Yeah. And with those Knausgaard books or whatever that guy's name is, I do feel like they're almost too readable. Like I just kind of slide through them like butter, and nothing catches because his narrative voice is so. Just smooth, kind of like Murakami, I guess. Where... I tried to read the first one, and I was like, "I'm just reading my own diary here, <laughs> right. but not in a good way." <laughs> I don't. I, this is the life that I'm glad I didn't lead. Why am I here? Why do I want to be here? But I like books that have like a whole world in them, and part of yeah. it is just that I'm a bit of a workaholic, and I like to feel like I, I accomplished something. I'm dusting off my hands. You can't see it. Believe me, I, I know that you are this. You don't need to explain it to me, but to the futurelings, I suppose. So I, my, my Protestant work, work ethic extends into reading. Like, I'm going to finish the Elena Ferrante books. I'm going to... And, like, kind of the nay plus ultra of that is uh, Mindy and I are now reading Anthony Pohl's 12-book series, A Dance to the Music of Time. Do you know this series? No. He wrote, he, it's, it's exactly the kind of Martin Amos thing that probably made you check out. It's a, uh, it's a uh, dryly funny, yeah. uh, 20th century Britain. It's, Paul is often called, he's invariably called the English Proust okay. because he kind of mined his own autobiography to 
kind of describe the social milieus he moved through, you know, starting in the 30s, going all the way up through 1970s Britain. But and, 12 and all, volumes. And all the wars and social changes. At what point is that not just typing? So the thing about these books is they, even though they are, you'd think they'd be self-indulgent, like Knausgård, whatever, like Knausgård. Knausgård. Because it's, oh, you don't say the K? I, I think no. Do you say the K in Carl? Or is it Arl? Narl. <laughs> The K is pronounced as an N. I, guess, I think K-N is Naus, whereas right. K-A is Ka. Okay. Uh, Don't, uh, but listen, if you're a Scandahoovian. If you're listening to this for wanna, John's take on Norwegian. Want to yell at me then, go right ahead. have you come to the wrong Yell show. into the void. This show is us mispronouncing <laughs> Dutch things, usually. And now it's us mispronouncing Norwegian things, too. Luvishnuva. <laughs> Um, but the thing about these books is they're not self-indulgent at all. They're extremely tightly structured. Huh. Each each volume is maybe 250, 300 pages, um, mm. but it's only like four scenes. It'll be like a, a, and typically a party or a late night dinner at some restaurant. You know, it's him kind of summing up his 20s, then his 30s, then, you know, then World War II, then his 40s. Um, and it's always, in, you know, Dance of the Music of Time is a reference to the Nicola Poussin canvas where he kind of is imagining his life as kind of a series of um, kind of having the the rhythm of a dance where different partners come through at different times, but motifs recur. Um, and it's almost, and the book's intended to be comic. Like it's, you don't have, you never have to read Proust once you've discovered these books because they're actually kind of funny. Oh. Uh, in addition to being. It's too late. Insightful looks at the time. You I already, would, you already uh, finished Proust? Not finished, but <laughs> read enough that I don't have to read anymore. You did it. <laughs> But I think this is, it's proof, it's funny, but also the, uh, it's, it's kind of unintentionally funny in that characters will keep recurring, but you'll have, you'll have seen somehow every scene in this guy's life where they appeared before. I had, I had not seen, um, Mrs. Whatever since the two previous occasions, the party at whatever and the, and you'll realize, wait a second, like I saw both of those scenes. Where does this guy go between books? You know, like I've seen every occasion in his life where he met these people, even though it's five years apart. It uh, sounds it sounds like the stories that I tell on on uh, Roderick on the Line, a yeah. show I've been doing for ten years. It's exactly a podcast. I basically. try never to repeat a story. It's apparently this guy goes into carbon freeze between between episodes right. because you know you see every time he meets these people, and um, Mindy and I are reading them together, uh, and she is like, wait. He hasn't seen this guy in five years, but I bet we see him again next time. He can, and sure enough, he does. But, you know, the idea is that well, as you move through life, you kind of have these partners. People fade in and out. But And did he write this by. series of books between his 30s and 60s? He wrote them retrospectively. I think the last book was written in the 70s about recent times, but the early books, I think, were written in the 50s about the 30s. Oh, great. Right, right. Um, and it's a real interesting record of, of Britain during the wars. and. And, you know, because people are moving in and out like that, um, here, just to make this omnibus book club, this is an excerpt from the beginning of the fourth book or the, you know, the second movement. It's now published as a series of four movements, each of which has three books called At Lady Molly's. And uh, this is a, this is a quote I remember. Everyone knows the manner in which some specific name will recur several times in quick succession from different quarters. Part of that inexplicable magic throughout life that makes us suddenly think of someone before turning a street corner and meeting him or her face to face. In the same way, you might be struck reading a book by some obscure passage or lines of verse quoted again quite unexpectedly 24 hours later. So this is as far as I know, as far as I've been able to find, the first account of someone describing a phenomenon that I have I notice 
extremely frequently in my life and that you may have seen as well, whereby you will see a reference to something usually for the first time and be surprised by the strangeness or newness of it only to have it immediately recur after to such a, you know, in such quick interval that you wonder where was this all my life that I never saw it. And now here it is twice in the same week. This is, this is slug bug. Yes. You, you, uh, you start playing slug bug and you, or at least you used to, every time you saw a Volkswagen bug, you'd give your, your road trip partner a slug and then all of a sudden you realize there are Volkswagen bugs everywhere. There weren't before I started playing. Right. Isn't there a, isn't there a version based on color? Uh, my kids play some variant where the car has to be... Oh. Uh, some weird color. Yellow. Which is funny because there's another name for the... Um, there's another... A, a, a common name given to this, uh, this illusion of, of frequency... Which is, it's often called red car syndrome. Yeah. Where, uh, but I don't think that makes sense. Really, where I've noticed it in my life is when I'm shopping for a car, when I just bought a new car, for example, then and only then do you start seeing that car everywhere. You've become attuned to it. Yeah. It's very, it's very much car oriented. Um, when I'm trying to think of other examples of things where I never noticed it before and then all of a sudden I see them all over. Uh, what, what are, what are some other examples? I guess what, I guess you'll, you'll see a reference to, you'll be reading a book and see a reference to Uganda and then you'll read a tweet that afternoon that references Uganda and then you'll hear a song that has Uganda in the lyrics and you go, what is happening? Why, uh, Uganda all of the sudden? But, but I, I for sure notice that when a friend buys an Audi, all of a sudden, there are Audis everywhere, a thing I wouldn't have noticed otherwise. I, I had this happen to me just last week, which is really the thing that kind of wanted me, inspired me to put this in the omnibus today. Uh, I was, there was a piece in the New York Times, in, you know, recently here in summer 2020, when we're recording this, about um, the Criterion Collection, sure. kind of a high-end collectible canon of, uh, of movies, often art movies. Uh, they started out on Laserdisc and now up through Blu-ray. This is a thing that came up for me recently uh, because of my Friendly Fire War Movie podcast. The Criterion Collection often has preserved these classic war movies that wouldn't be found elsewhere. And great, you know, like the the good print of it. Yeah, and you had to watch, you had to suffer through Come and See because of the Criterion Collection. Listen, we didn't suffer through Come and See, although... Watching come and see is to suffer. That's what I mean. <laughs> but um, but no, I mean it's That's everyone should see it and then listen to our episode about it. Uh, so the the point of this Times piece was to say that even though the Criterion Collection now you know having been this curated uh, set for I think well over a decade. Um, Oh, oh no! It would be almost twenty years. The DVD era started in around nineteen ninety nine. Sure, so but they were laser discs first. Right? They were, but I think the current numbering begins with. I see. You know, the first DVDs they they put out around 2000, I think, Grand Illusion and uh, I don't know. So they're now well over a thousand discs, a thousand movies in the collection. And they've come under criticism recently. Yeah. The point in the Times was that on, there are only three black directors. <laughs> in a thousand? Yeah. A thousand films? <laughs> and uh, and I looked on my shelves and I have, uh, I there's a couple of the Spike Lee movies. There's a couple of Spike Lee movies, Do the Right Thing and Bamboozled. And I have both of those. And they have one Charles Burnett movie, I think Killer of Sheep. And I can't remember who the third director is, but, you know, it was a very interesting piece where the Criterion Collection is starting to interrogate itself and think, what have we done? You yeah, know, right. We, this is the canon all over again. You know, and we thought we didn't, we felt like we were 
we didn't feel like we were part of the problem. And yet now that you look back and there's only three black directors and the point of the piece was that, um, you know, even as, uh, you know, coursework diversifies and traditional gatekeepers like editors and publishers start to diversify, that there's a class beyond that, which is some kind of esteemed, untouchable afterlife of art that becomes much harder, where even when you're seeing more voices of color, more women's voices, more, you know, at the lower levels, like there's some exclusively higher level that without even saying so kind of tends to stay old and male and white. Right. Once it's enshrined or, or the criteria to be enshrined means that it would have had to have received awards in its time. It would have had to have been celebrated in its time. Yeah. It's not malicious. There's all these steps that would have had to have happened. So, and because those didn't happen because of the uh, less enlightened past, you have this great lag whereby that level you know, tends to be decades behind the state of the art elsewhere. And Criterion has noticed that like on their, they've got a streaming service now, the Criterion channel where they're, you know, working scrupulously to get a diversity of voices. And it just has not infiltrated the upper echelon at all. And one of the examples mentioned in this New York times piece was a movie I had never heard of called the daughters of the dust by Julie dash, which apparently is kind of a tone poem about the life among these uh, Gullah communities sure. off, off South Carolina, you know, the island yeah. people off South Carolina. And uh, first, apparently the first woman, the first movie ever to achieve wide release in America by an African-American woman. And do you want to guess what year that was? 1972. 1991. Wow. And I, as late as... 19, the early nineties, first ever a black movie. woman had never had a movie in theaters. Wow. So it's, it, you know, you'd think it would be like, well, there would be some trailblazer in the 40, you know, nope. 1991. So I'd never heard of this movie. And I was just fascinated by daughters of the dust by Julie dash. And the next day I was watching a documentary about, uh, the New York public library of all things. And uh, a documentary made when recently 2015 or so. Uh huh. Um, but not so recently that it was influenced by this could not have news been, item, you know, mm-hmm. could, two totally independent things. It's a Frederick Wiseman documentary. He, he likes these very long kind of fly on the wall documentaries about communities and institutions. And it's great for pandemic times where you just want to sit and let me recommend this to you. Now that this is the omnibus book club, it's also the omnibus movie club. You should try watching Frederick Wiseman's documentaries in quarantine they're all they're, they've been hard to see for many years, but now if you have a library card, you may have access to Canopy, which has like a dozen of these Wiseman documentaries, and you can just see a hospital be a hospital for four hours, or uh-huh. uh, Jackson Heights be a street a street corner in Jackson Heights for four hours, or he has one about uh, the National Gallery in London, he has one about UC Berkeley. I was watching one about the New York Public Library, and it's really in a time when we don't have these public spaces anymore. It's really kind of nostalgic and bittersweet to kind of watch them in action and see the kind of human connection and mis- mission that's missing now in person. But anyway, this documentary about the New York Public Library just covers every aspect of the library system from the highest level of board meetings to story time at some branch in Harlem or Queens. And uh, one of the things they're showing at a, at a cultural center is somewhere in Harlem is a, uh, some new art exhibit that's opening in some public area of the library. And there is a poster for Daughters of the Dust, directed by Julie Dash. Huh. Which I had just read about for the first time the day before. And, you know, it, it did not seem possible. It's, you understand 
the Jungian take on this, which is that the universe has somehow reacted to me learning this new fact, and that has somehow changed the sea of collective consciousness in which we all have a part, and the un- you know somehow it has now surged up from the unconscious, and I have changed the shape of the universe by making Daughters of the da- Dust now manifest itself to me multiple times. Right. It really felt like an impossible thing. Is Daughters of the Dust a particle or a wave? Ooh, in this story. I guess it's de- it depends on the observer. That, you're the observer. Well, then I get to decide. Yeah. It was a particle. Yes. It was a wave when I Whoa. read about it in the, <laughs> in the Times, and then it was a particle when I saw it in the Wiseman. <laughs> because there's n- really no other instance in the last month, say, if you can think of all the media you've consumed, where Daughters of the Dust could even plausibly have made an appearance. And, you know— even weirder to think about the previous decades of my life where I've thought extensively about film and about art film, all those times when I could have thought of, uh, been exposed to Daughters of the Dust and weren't, and yet two times, uh, uh, 24 hours apart. But surely when you were, when you were surfing the, the aisles of Scarecrow video, your finger ran across the spine of Daughters yes. of the Dust, and you didn't have any context to know what it was. Unless it just started existing now with a full backstory. Right. You know, like a like a, a comic book retcon. Um, this is a... So this is something that's... You can probably think of examples of that happening in your life, because, assuming your futureling uh, cranium works anything like ours. Your ganglion works anything like ours. Um, it's something that scholars call the frequency illusion. Mm-hmm. Just this idea of not not two things happening at once, but specifically uh, something you learned about recently reappearing in short order. Um, but what's interesting is that the name for it, the te- this kind of quasi-technical term, frequency illusion, was only coined in 2006 by, a, by a Stanford professor with a popular linguistics blog. Uh, he, before that, this idea didn't have a name. Um I guess in the movie, you know, you could have called it red car syndrome with your friends. Right. In the in the movie Repo Man, uh, you may remember this scene where uh, the kind of the mystical mechanic Miller, the guy played by Tracy Walter, calls it a plate of shrimp phenomenon, basically, where he talks about how, you know, you'll think about a plate of shrimp and then suddenly one will appear. You know, this kind of synchronicity, it's something that people notice, but it was never studied or or even named. Suppose you're thinking about a plate of shrimp. Suddenly somebody will say, like, plate or shrimp or plate of shrimp, out of the blue, no explanation. No point in looking for one either. It's all part of a cosmic unconsciousness. Well, it feels like it's a companion to deja vu. It's a companion to so many of these phenomenon that if you're, if you're a member of a, a sort of woo-woo, like, cu- culture of, of the world where you see interconnectedness where, and you and – you, you equate it with a with a sort of spiritual take on this kind of thing really helps metaphysics. you understand a mystical worldview. Yeah, it does. Because it feels like it's not possible by any other means. And yet something like this happens to us pretty regularly, right? It, I mean, even if you can't think of an example, you know that this is something you see often in your life, right? It does. It ha- it happens all the time or or that um <clears throat> Someone says, oh, I was just thinking about this. And you go, I was just thinking about that. Or someone, <sighs> there's no way to account for the fact that you could sit and think of someone you'd never thought of, or you hadn't thought of in nine months, and they text you an hour later. Mm-hmm. And 
And, and so, that is the conceit of a dance of the music of time, but it's not purely literary. It happens in real life as well. Right. Right. So, so, uh, so where do we go from here, Ken? How do I explain it? <laughs> yeah. Have you, un- have you unmasked the secret? You, the, the, the gatekeeper? Yes. There are explanations for what is come to be called in dictionaries, but in dictionaries via the internet, via blogs, Bader-Meinhof phenomenon. This is now what it's called in the Oxford English Dictionary. Really? Yes. Uh, and the fact is that the, this name for it, Bader-Meinhof phenomenon, actually predates the uh, you know the more cognitive, technical-sounding term frequency illusion. Uh, Bader-Meinhof phenomenon was coined in 1994. Uh, and the story of its coining is kind of interesting. The St. Paul Pioneer Press, the local newspaper of St. Paul, Minnesota, had, and I believe still has, a popular feature called Bulletin Board, which is just a lazy editor's dream come true. It's just a series of uh, random reader suggestions and ruminations, and not so much a letters to the editor, not a not response and complaint to anything the newspaper did, but just, uh, here's something I thought about the other day, here's something me and my friends were talking about. Um, you know, in the days before, uh, what, social media or, uh, you know, there really weren't that many of these virtual gathering places, but, uh, you know, a fun newspaper community really was. I was thinking the other day about how even before geek culture had its news groups and its, uh, y- you know, popular YouTube destinations, comic books had letters pages where people were encouraged to write in and just say whatever. And it was because there were no other fora like this. I mean, it was also so that they could send their stuff under the cheapest mailing rates if they had a text page. Right. But, uh, you know, newspapers were a place for this kind of thing. And so the St. Paul Pioneer Press had this bulletin board where people could write it and say whatever. And uh, in 1994, a pseudonymous commenter called... Pseudonymous. Wow. G- Great. Great word. I think I said that right. <laughs> I love it. Gigetto on Lincoln was how he... Uh, was how he uh, referred to himself. On Lincoln, E-N-L-I-N-C-O-N? No, on O-N, the English, oh. the English uh, huh. preposition. Okay. Uh, he wrote in to talk about uh, a phenomenon that he and his friends had noticed uh, called, or here's the letter in its entirety. Many years ago, for, this is from the, uh, the St. Paul, Minnesota Pioneer Press of October 16th, 1994. Many years ago, I identified a phenomenon so startling and so broad in its application that it encompasses many forms of eerie coincidence. I have dubbed it the Bader-Meinhof phenomenon. Uh The phenomenon goes like this. The first time you learn a new word, phrase, or idea, you will see that word, phrase, or idea again in print within 24 hours. And it comes from a a discussion he had with a friend. About the Bader-Meinhof gang. Something they had never heard about before. But then as soon as he learned about it, suddenly it seemed to be everywhere in in news and publications in the world around him, just like Daughters of the Dust. And so he and his friends started calling it that, presumably sometime in the 80s or 90s, and finally wrote into a paper about it. And he identified a kind of a corollary to it, a synchronicity-related corollary, which he called the comics page corollary, which means if you look at the comics page, a daily comics page of a newspaper, you will always find two strips that have the same punchline. Oh, not word for word. Sure, but the same gag. But related to the same gag. You know, like he says, uh, for example, in last week's St. Paul Pioneers Press, there was a gag about a dog drinking out of the toilet in Garfield and Mother Goose and Grimm or, you know, something like that. So, you know, just a guy who was interested in 
correlation. But that's there it sat on this one page of a local newspaper for well over a decade. You see this crossword puzzles are the the uh, you know like a a key stone of this, right? Yes. Because you're always going to see something in a crossword puzzle. And a lot of them that right? you only thought of or heard of yesterday. Yeah. A crossword puzzle is a place just where by the numbers you're going to see 80 a short description of what 80 to 100 things. Yeah. Some of them are going to be new because that's what crosswords are for. Right. Um, Some of them are just going to be one more way of saying Brian Eno. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Any uh, producer that worked with Bowie. Any cooking term is aioli. (laughs) This happened to me yesterday. I was doing a crossword and there was some six letter word and without even, you know, without even any crossing letters at all, I just knew that if it, I don't even remember what the category. Oh, for a David Mamet play, it had to be Oleana because it's all Oleana has the right number of vowels. It's a, you know, it's a scrabble rack you want to turn in. Um, so this idea of Bader-Meinhof phenomenon just sat nowhere but a local St. Paul paper for well over a decade until, uh, a blogger named Alan Bellows mentioned this phenomenon, frequency illusion. Having read about it in, at the time or having researched it somehow? It must have circulated on the internet a bit. It's like Poe's Law. Somebody says it and then all of a sudden it's a universal You realize you need a name for this thing. And as I'm saying, as I say, frequency illusion had not yet been coined by Arnold Zwicky of Stanford. So there was really nothing to call it except for, you know, whatever you and your friends call it, whether that's blue car syndrome or, and there started to be a critical mass of people calling it Bader-Meinhof phenomenon. And this, you know, this really mounted when Alan Bellows mentioned it on his popular blog, Damn Interesting. And uh, it entered the Oxford English Dictionary, you know, online edition, because there is no printed new OED anymore. That's a tragedy. It really is. Uh, It entered the Oxford English Dictionary in 2019. So Bader-Meinhof phenomenon which is just this guy's name for this thing that he and his buddies used right. to, you know, mention at the pizza place after city league softball or whatever, uh, has moved into the language. And Jigeto on Lincoln actually came out of the closet and introduced himself once, um, you know, once people did the back history and found out that some anonymous Jigeto on Lincoln had come up with this, his name is Terry Mullen. And he, you know, responded to the damn interesting blogger and said, yeah, that's uh, that's me. Um, confusingly, he said that his name, Jigetto on Lincoln, was a reference to his Wheaton Terrier named Einstein. Sure. I sure. guess his dog had both a name, Einstein, and a nickname, Jigetto on Lincoln. I really feel like on Lincoln, E-N-L-I. Uh, what would that mean to you if you do something on Lincoln? I just, is it a sex move? Is it a, <laughs> is it a culinary t- uh, approach? I feel like it's a great last name where the L is also capitalized, E-N, capital L. I just, I just want somebody, I want that uh, uh, character to appear in a play. It seems like instructions for trimming your beard, right? Oh, yeah. Do it on Lincoln. I would like it on Lincoln, please. Or, 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 or a way to get a, like a, uh, like a, like a fried steak with gravy. Like I'll have that uh, on yeah. Lincoln with, and that means that you had capers or something or a $5 tip. I'm going to give you a $5 tip on, on, I'm Lincoln. Give on Lincoln. Oh, Hey, that's nice. Uh, you would think when I heard Botter Meinhof phenomenon, I assumed that, uh, like the Stockholm syndrome, it was related to a specific. Yeah. Related event. to the, to, uh, you would be a victim of terrorism, and from that point on, you would never want another banana or something like the that. The fun thing about the naming of Bader-Meinhof phenomenon is it literally could have been anything. 
if he and his friends had been talking about the Suez crisis, right. or if they had been talking about uh, the board game, uh, the mousetrap, right. you know, it, it could have been any of those things. It's the shoots and ladders phenomenon. And that's, that's, kind of the, that's kind of in keeping with the spirit of the frequency illusion, is that it is something new every time, so it could be called anything. For these guys, it happened to be called Badr-Meinhof, and somehow, through some weird internet propagation, that was the name that took hold. Isn't that extraordinary? And that that even seems... I dream of coining something with such stickiness. Well, and I wonder, you know, we we, we coin things all the time. Well, how was, what does it take for the internet to, to boost something? I think our problem is that we coin too many things. Oh, right. If, we, if you and I could just write one letter to the editor... In the St. Louis, uh, St. Paul uh, Post-Dispatch. Or right to the Sacramento Bee or the New Orleans Times Picky. I have a friend at the Sacramento Bee. We might be able to get that, that letter get that put in, in print? There. Yeah. But the problem is you and I just come up with so many amazing good ideas during every hour of this podcast that the culture is just scrambling to keep up. Do you have any catchphrases associated with yourself? Did you ever say anything on Jeopardy that, I mean, I guess there's no. the, the famous one where you answered ho in response to a thing that should have been rake. Yes. That's a good meme, at least. That's not a good catchphrase, though. I have a few that have entered the lexicon of my crowd. What, uh, you would, you, what would you say are the most prominent examples? And this is not just people who know you, but this would be fans who right. know your work or listen to your podcast. The, the ones that have escaped my immediate orbit are keep moving and get out of the way, which was a kind of doctrine of living in, a, in an urban environment. You need to keep moving. Yes. And... Get out of the way. It's not or. Keep moving and get out of the way. Why is moving not sufficient? You have to move in the right direction? Yeah, there, there are ways in which you can move that would be in somebody's way? You can move obliviously in all directions and be really in people's way. So you need to be conscious that you should not stop on a sidewalk or in a supermarket aisle and just stand there. But just keeping moving isn't sufficient. You need to also be thinking, like, how can I get out of the way? So there was that. And then... Um, at one point I told the story where I, uh, described the phrase, all the great shows as kind of explaining, a a way of maybe mistaking, um, in, in I, I was in conversation with an artist and I was like, Hey, I love your shows. And instead of saying, thank you, he said, which shows he was a TV producer <laughs> of some renown. Uh, and it was kind of a dick move. And yeah, and, don't do that. But he caught me because I get. I don't love his shows. I was just sitting at a show business thing and being show busy. But why would you want to reveal that somebody doesn't know or like your work? What yeah. a weird, what a weird thing to reveal. Yeah, if somebody said I love your albums, I would never say which ones. I mean, what a like. And so I stared at him, and he was like, "Which shows?" And maybe he, maybe he knew that I was BSing him, but I said all the great shows, <laughs> and it was a leftover from a, th- a thing that happened years before. But that actually escaped my orbit, and now within. Within podcasting, like all the great shows. In fact, there's a podcasting company that made it their, um, made it their tagline. But you not, you didn't see a penny and didn't credit me at all. They should send you a they should send you a five dollar bill. But that's not Lincoln. that's not the same as as Botter Meinhof phenomenon becoming a thing that's written about in academic circles. Isn't that crazy? And it's really be- so. This was great because there he identified something for which there was no name. Right. Now, let's say we don't buy this Jungian explanation that I physically changed the shape of space-time in some mystical way by by reading about Julie Dash's movie Daughters of the Dust. Like, let's say that there is a... Do you, do you buy that? Do you think there is a purely rationalistic explanation for uh, 
for Bader-Meinhof phenomenon? Well, I've been teased quite a bit uh, for saying just generally that I am a rational person who believes in science. Who would tease you for that? Oh, your your horoscope-reading sister. But Well, my horoscope-reading sister. But know that I also you know, can be kept up at night by ghosts mm, if I'm staying oh, in a strange house. And I don't see that those are mutually incompatible because although I do not believe in ghosts, I also cannot sleep in a house that sure. is full of ghosts. Sure. I mean, the ghosts are going to exist whether you believe in them or not. Yeah, right. And and so I'm, you know, I, I and oh, and we talked about it in the moon illusion. You described it as, you described it perfectly. And I said, that's all wonderful and everything, but I still don't believe it. The moon's still too big. The moon is really big sometimes. And so, yes, I am, I am a science believer, but also spooky action at a distance. You know, I have a hard time managing stress sometimes, and I've always wanted to learn how to meditate, but who has the time? Am I right? That's why I'm so excited about Headspace. It's one of the only meditation apps advancing the field of mindfulness and meditation through clinically validated research. Headspace's approach to mindfulness can reduce stress, improve sleep, boost focus, and increase your overall sense of well-being. These are all things I desperately crave. But I always feel like I'm learning to do meditation wrong. Headspace makes it easy to build a life-changing meditation practice with mindfulness that would work for you or me on our schedule, anytime, anywhere. We deserve to feel happier, and Headspace is meditation made simple. Go to headspace.com slash omnibus for a free one-month trial with access to Headspace's full library of meditations for every situation. This is the best deal offered right now. Head to Headspace. That's head to headspace.com slash omnibus today. Let me give you a rundown of what the scholar's explanation of Bader-Meinhof phenomena might be. And you can tell me if you prefer it to spooky action at a distance or not. Because there's an aesthetic judgment, too. I think think these explanations are actually quite beautiful for for why Bader-Meinhof phenomenon is so persistent, even though it seems so unlikely. Um, The the main thing that's happening is that your brain has evolved to crave patterns. Right. It wants order absolutely for obvious reasons i mean if there's 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 just going to be too much going on you want to pick the tiger's face out of a bush exactly uh you want to be able to distinguish tiger from bush you want to be able to distinguish the sound of a of a harmless monkey from the sound of a harmful monkey a harmful (laughs) monkey that wants to steal all your bananas Uh a face-eating monkey (laughs) um you want to be able to, what, see the signs that remind you you're on the road to where the good berries are? That's right. I mean, our, our ancestors who couldn't do these things died. Yeah. So we are left with the brains that are left over. When you hear a certain cracking, you know you want to get off of the, uh, the flame swamp? Uh, a certain behavior in other members of your species that means they're about to come at you with a sharp rock versus the kind of behavior that means... They just want to f- fool around. Right. I, I don't mean fool around, but or, or that. Hey, fool around and find out. Fool around with a capital F and a capital A. Who knows? I learned at a young age to recognize drunk eyes and to to know that no matter how sober someone is looking, you know, acting, if they have drunk eyes, you can you can uh, bilk them out of their money. Yeah, you're going to have to you, you know you zig when when they expect you to zag. Uh, so a, a result of that is that there's part of your brain that's always subconsciously kind of looking. For patterns. Mm -hmm. And what that means is, you know, the first time you hear about Daughters of the Dust or 
we should have some better example of this. What's something? What's something you learned about recently? Well, uh, we talked about bananas t- two episodes ago, and we have found a way to mention bananas in both subsequent. See, episodes. that's what happens. So you, your brain is going to look for ways in which it can insert that into the discourse. And you know, and I didn't make daughters of the dust appear in that video, but I just wouldn't have noticed it otherwise. You know, the, the brain seized upon a poster in the background of a shot that I would not even have seen otherwise. But the, what that suggests is that Daughters of the Dust is appearing in the, is. in the background of things all the time. Isn't that an amazing... Like, to me, that's the most beautiful corollary wow. of the Bader-Meinhof phenomenon, is just how rich the universe is with new knowledge. And we're only just skimming the surface based on our priors, you know? Right. Like, the more... And also, the corollary of that, the more you know, the more you will get out of life. Because having recognized Daughters of the Dust, I was able to see a connection in this Harlem poster exhibit to a part of 90s black American culture that I did not know existed 48 hours before. Right. Um, so uh, the more you know. I mean, I mean, that is elegant, and it does suggest life's a rich tapestry. But Daughters of the Dust is such a specific piece of culture. I know. How is it possible that in the course of my daily life over the last month that it has appeared somewhere and I failed to recognize We're going to have to test it. We're going to see if Daughters of the Dust reappears for you sometime this month. I imagine that when this episode comes out, futurelings uh, who are in the present will report to us whether or not instances of Daughters of the Dust re- uh, appearing without them manifesting. I don't know of any widespread tests of... Well, this uh, of the Bader-Meinhof phenomenon. Bader-Meinhof like phenomenon only appeared in the in the popular press in the last year, we're, so this is it. We're doing the original research right now. We're at ground zero. So, that, but there has been clinical testing of some of the underlying um, cognitive biases that might lead to the frequency illusion. Don't we pronounce it biases here on Omnibus? I was about to say biases because <laughs> you said processes in the last show, and I don't want you to get all the angry letters. Oh, all the letters. Uh, there's a. I mean, you know, all the, the biases are all rooted in basically selective attention. The fact that because there's so much going on, your brain picks out the, the patterns that make sense and right. seizes on those. Right. And you can't possibly be, right. be in, inputting everything. In that four-hour documentary, there were thousands of things in the background, and I seized on the one I knew. Um, and But this all uh, goes back to a bias, which is usually called availability bias, which is just a complicated way of saying that the things that come most easily to mind shape our thinking, right? Obviously, um, and but you can make bad decisions. It, it turns out that's usually a good heuristic, which is why we evolved it. The things that come most easily to mind should be the things that determine our thinking, you know. Um, but but I keep trying to impose Napoleon at Waterloo as a um, as a metaphor for almost every situation that I have. Just say, I'm like, ah, oh, this is like Napoleon at Waterloo. Just say Jigetto on Lincoln. <laughs> this is just like Jigetto on Lincoln. There's a, in the early 70s, there was a famous laboratory experiment where uh, I think this is a very elegant way to um, way to study this is you ask people, is it more common for words to start with the letter K? Are there more words that start with the letter K or more words that have K as the third letter? Hmm. And, you know, now that I've couched it this way, you can kind of kick the tires of that and try to see what that test is trying to prove. Right. As a Scrabble a player, I'm going to say start with the letter K. See, that's what you would think because it's easy to think of words that start with the letter K, right? Right. A, a, a subject sitting in that room can be like kangaroo, koala. You know, they can go through 
I can think of 20 words start letter K, and I can't think of that many that were the... It's just harder to think of words by its third letter, because right. that's not how our brain works. And in particular, because Ks are often preceded by Cs in the middle of words. And that will not happen in the third position. Ack, 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 or bok, bok, bok. Unless you're the comic strip Kathy. Right. Or a second comic strip, which also has the punchline ack. Or a second comic strip that is referencing a comic strip that references Kathy. That's the comic strip corollary. In fact, there are three times as many words in English where K is the third letter. Show me one. Cokehead. Uh, oh, all uh, right. Uh, Good. Uh, arc. Take. <laughs> I mean, it's all the it's oh, all the blank take. K-E words. Of course, Puke, of course. bike. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now um, I see. Ask. Short. Eskimo. Because I was looking for, like, al- alkaline. Let's, well, there you go. Yeah. That's a good one. But that's but that uh, that seemed like such a strange, uh, like a like an like an yes. outlier. Yeah, exactly. Icky. But but, uh, but yeah, like talk, walk, balk. Well, those are all the fourth. Le- those are all the fourth letters. Yeah, right. It's See, be that's like that's my problem. <laughs> bake, hike. Oh, bake, hike. Let's spend for the rest of the show. Let's just think of uh, like words that Mike. But that's not how your brain works. Hike. Um, and so the ease of remembering something makes us think it's true. There's there's another famous uh, test of this, which is done by having people tell stories of times they were assertive, and then asking them to grade themselves on their own assertiveness. And obviously, having re- recalled the stories makes that number bump up. But what's interesting is, if you have them think of six times they were assertive, that's relatively easy. Um, and they, that tend, they tend to grade their assertiveness highly when you ask them. If you ask them to think of 12 times they were assertive, now that's bringing more stories to mind, so you'd think it would bump the number up. But because those stories were not retrieved easily, because it took more effort to retrieve them, they actually do not grade their own assertiveness more highly. Because they're probably cycling through stories where they were not assertive, trying to find, oh, no, that time I actually didn't stand up for Does myself. Does that one count? The hypothesis is that ease of retrievability is the heuristic. Oh, I see. Like, because they were able to pull out it easily, they were like, yeah, no, I could think of those easily. I must be assertive. Yeah. Whereas if it was if their last experience thinking of assertive examples was difficult, a particular subset of this availability bias, a particular fallacy, is uh, the recency effect. Right. Whereby people misjudge the importance of things because they happened... Uh, recently. And you can see that in so many uh, walks of life. I mean, it was first discovered just in a lab where they were, uh, you know, psychologists and cognitive theorists were studying people's short-term memories. And uh, woman, man, people, camera, camera, TV. TV. Yeah, whatever comes last in the list, you remember more. Uh, It's called the serial position effect. Um, and there's a primacy effect, too, where, whereby the first thing in the list you tend to remember, and then things in the middle, there's kind of a bell curve where it's harder to retrieve them. And uh, it's interesting that that affects other parts of life just besides short-term memory. For example, um, in sports betting, you can often, one way to find irrationalities in a betting line is to find a case in which a normally very good team has lost a few, uh-huh. because that will trick sports bettors into... I mean, not just because of streaks, they just tend to think of that as a worse team because, you know, they've won 10, but then they've recently lost two. Oh, they don't think uh, this is a time to get in because the odds will be better and and uh, this is actually a good team that's going to... The canny ones will, but in general, it's easy to fool people. It's the same in the stock market. Like, uh, 
it's one reason why it takes why market cycles tend to take a while to bounce back is because when things have gone down recently, it's rational to think, hey, this is a cycle I should get in. But instead, people are scared off by what happened, uh, you know, last week. Right. Uh, in fact, you know, numbers on people believing in climate change will go up after a hot day. Isn't that strange? Uh, people will tend to quit sm- smoking more often after they see an unhealthy TV character smoking. Like, it's almost insidious the ways in which it can get into your psyche. Um, but I think the recency effect and the primacy effect really help explain the batter meinhof phenomenon because... By definition, if you're fixating on something for the first time, it's both recent and prime. It's the first time you heard of that. And so you have the benefits of both phenomena paying off, uh, which really tends to stick it in your head. Um, And then there's the whole thing about how humans don't understand risk very well. Um, You know, a, a train ridership will go up after a plane crash for example. Which is weird given that pattern recognition is part of our hardwiring that you wouldn't also be able to kind of extend that beyond just tell tiger from bush to include, you know, to tell risk of tiger being in bush, right? To, to say like, I mean, it makes, it makes sense that you should, you know, if, if a tiger was there yesterday, that is more dangerous to if a tiger was there last week, but more recently I saw a monkey there. Right. Um, right. I suppose that's right. Like our friend Buzzy Cohen keeps wanting us to do a show about, um, coconut related injuries. Right. But Buzzy keeps not understanding that he needs to donate to the, uh, (laughs) Patreon of the Omnibus Project in order to request a show. Just having won a few Jeopardies doesn't get you in some kind of special class. Yeah. You don't get one show suggestion every time you win a, a paltry nine shows. Yeah. Uh, no, uh, the uh, but the thing about the coconut injuries is that you know they don't get media attention, rel- but they are more common than shark injuries. But or know, lightning strikes. But shark attacks are a great example of people being bad at gener. Yeah, pe- shark attacks are an example of people being very bad at uh, at judging risk. You know, because of availability bias, they can easily think of shark related uh, incidents, which tend to be media friendly. Stick in the brain. They're unusual. They the got 10, they 000, got big teeth. Ten thousand times that sharks have chewed undersea cables all the way apart, <laughs> even though that guy says it never happens. You know the truth. <laughs> um, so we overestimate the probability of things happening that that caught our attention. Right. I see a, a plane crash or a shark attack. I wish that the media would stop covering up all the coconut related injuries. It really is big coconut mm-hmm. trying to keep us down. Um, and as a sidelight to just that whole thing about how we're bad at, at judging coincidences, um, you know, we don't tend to see the, I mean, we've talked about this before on the show. What, what, what show was that where we talked about weird coincidences? I can't remember. Uh, somebody will tell us. Yeah, sure. But, uh, you know, one of the things we talked about was how, you know, the odds of any particular coincidence happening are very low. And that tends to make people think the odds of coincidences happening are low. But in a world where billions of coincidences are possible, billions of different batter Meinhofs could happen to me this month. Um, well, not billions, but, you know, hundreds of thousands of different batter Meinhofs could happen to me this month. In a world where there's so many options, some coincidence is likely to happen. And, you know, think about this particular one of Daughters in the Dust. You know, I'm I'm a person who was both watching a four-hour documentary about 
arts about the New York Public Library, and I'm somebody who was reading a New York Times piece about the Criterion Collection all the way to the end. Right. So, you know, it's not a pure coincidence that I saw Daughters of the Dust twice in 24 hours. No, that's right. You, you, you're you already expressing a preference for a certain kind of culture. Certain, yeah, that kind of coincidence. There's a narrowing. It really selected for me. And that's a, you know, that's a really good example of one because it's early 90s art film. It's something that's right up my alley anyway. Right. So, so you, you it's not that you were just consuming the entire breadth of culture right. all the time. Like, if that had been a thing about some weightlifter at the 1916 Olympics, you know, then I would have been, whoa, that's truly random. How could that guy have come around twice? Although, probably, if you're experiencing an interest in a topic, it's longer than an hour. If you saw anything interesting in it, you would pursue something in its its same sort of genre. Right. For the next week or so. Right. And so, it it makes sense that whatever patterns led you to see it the first time would continue a day later or a week later when it crops up again. I like that. You know, the dark side of this kind of thing, as we've said, it's a little bit insidious as to how easily our brains can react just to the availability of a name or a thing, because that can be manipulated. Right. Um, It can be manipulated by marketing. You know, uh, lawyers are well aware of this. You know, they, they know about the recency effect and the primacy effect, and when they construct an argument to a jury... They will. They know to put important things first and last, whether that's a a sensible way to structure the argument or not. Just because they know that's convincing to a jury, because that's the way the heuristics in our head work. Well, you see it uh, right now. We're in the we're recording this, you know, at the, around the time of the Republican National Convention, and they have all these instances of very recent protest violence and pro you know protests that were only just in the newspapers and they can they they have all that footage all those references to make it seem like the the left and the urban environments are coming unhinged we'll prove to you that cancel culture is a thing here's a guy who here's one experienced guy. cancel culture <laughs> yeah. but but you know but you remember him yeah he's here at the from, national convention from a couple <laughs> months ago yeah i think in politics it's politics is a very interesting case for this because I was thinking about lawn signs the other day uh-huh. and how I, I, I was wondering if they worked because uh-huh. you know, I'm seeing them everywhere right now. We have an election coming. In, in, yeah, we're, we're recording this before the election. You know, all these people with Biden-Harris lawn signs up in, in prosperous North Seattle, what is that even for? Like, who are you? I mean, I, I get that it makes you feel good. And candidates love them because they like seeing their names everywhere, yeah. right? Uh, when you ran for office, did you have a big lawn sign initiative? I, there were lawn signs all over, but um, you know, lawn signs are, are distributed by your army of volunteers, and th- that army of volunteers, of course, is is uh, they don't know the entire town. I remember being up in North Seattle and driving around, and not only were there none of my lawn signs, but I saw one solitary little homemade lawn sign for one of my uh, opponents, and felt like, where are my lawn signs? But I remember distinctly, I was crossing Beacon Hill on a kind of, not a back route, but a, but a, a, a smaller arterial. And the, uh, the arterial made a kind of jog. And there was a house there on the corner that had Roderick for City Council signs very prominently on both sides of their yard. And I felt like pulling over and going up and ringing their doorbell and like giving them all a hug and some baked goods. I just felt like so, um, 
validated by this house that I saw in the wild. And it's different than seeing your signs on the freeway or something. This was a person who not only was going to vote for me, but, you know, wanted everybody to know. And that was, I was pretty proud. They were okay associating their support of you with their physical address. Yeah, this is our house and we are Roderick voters. In this house, Black Lives Matter, science is real. That's right. John Roderick should be on the city council. You know, Black Lives Matter signs are a good example in the sense that you see them all the time in, in affluent white neighborhoods and you wonder. It's, I, it's easy to be suspicious of, you know, is, is that just a self-congratulatory gesture that person is doing instead of the real work? Right. Or does it work? Do your, do your undecided neighbors go, huh, that's, this seems to be a, this a is catch, This is catching on. Yeah. I mean, well, that would be the, the, the batter Meinhof explanation, which is people will see it once for the first time and that will fix it in their brain. Right. And then they're more likely to pay attention to it when they see it again. Well, this is when I was selling records back in the days when my band had records for sale, we talked all the time about impressions, which is an advertising idea, a marketing idea. Marketing has to have this because otherwise, why do they exist if um, just somebody seeing your name but not buying your product right. is, is, is not a measurable thing. But the phenomenon was pronounced because your goal as an indie rock band was to get on the David Letterman show. Like this was the sign that you had truly arrived. And it was the difference between the new pornographers and the long winters. The new Mm -hmm. pornographers had played the Letterman show more than once. The long winters, somehow we were in contact with their bookers. They said they loved us, but we never made it on the show. But we had friends that did and learned to our surprise and consternation that you know meticulous tracking of record sales in the two weeks following the letterman show consistently indicated that an appearance on the letterman show did not sell a single record like your record sales remained absolutely constant and probably in decline wow even though here you are for the first time playing in front of millions of people it didn't sell a single record and the and what we learned was the Letterman show needed to be followed up with print. You know, you needed to be in national magazines. You needed to have your records prominently displayed in record stores. And it's, is it a better Meinhof thing where if people see your yes. name twice? Yes. And, you know, and once they're attuned to the first time, they might notice. But once you see it twice, you have a sense that wh- you notice it. You have a sense that, whoa, that's something that's out there. And what they say is that you have to have that, hear the song on the radio, and go, huh, oh, that's that band that I saw on the Letterman show that I read that article about. And then when you go to the record store or are walking past the, the supermarket or whatever, you see the record. And that's what that's the fourth or fifth step. That's and true. that's when people buy. Because it is hard to turn someone from I've heard of this, I've heard of this, uh, you know, this name of a band rings a bell to, oh, I'm going to pay. Sixteen ninety nine for this, and you see it all the time with bands where you where you've never heard of a band before, and then you turn on the radio and they're there, and then you pick up the alternative weekly and they're there. And partly it's because they're it's an advertising campaign; they've got a new record. But also, you can go from never having heard of a band or movie to to caring enough about them to buy their album if this you know this set of conditions lines up. And if it doesn't, even appearing on national television isn't enough. There has been some pretty careful mathematical study of of whether or not lawn signs do anything. Because of course, 
you know, big national campaigns are, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars, the highest possible geopolitical stakes. People want to know if they're spending their money right. And they don't care if the candidate likes seeing his name everywhere, if it's not actually going to bring out the vote. So there's been a study of whether or not yard signs work. And the effect turns out to be basically zero huh? as far as can be made. I mean, not not quite zero, but, you know, as the, as the Washington Post headline read, 98.3% ineffective, <laughs> which meant, uh, you know, there's a, they, they do tend to push, you know, there's a correlation of lawn sign prevalence with the vote, but it's only a 1.7% difference and that's a one percent margin of error they're very expensive and labor intensive to put right? out there it's uh it's interesting to find this out and you know if you want to know how many elections can actually get swayed by a 1.7 percent difference in the electorate it's about one in 50 really so you know the most you can do with yard signs is win one in 50 extra elections with them we just had a a, a little the two of us had a little twitter conversation with the lieutenant governor of uh of utah a man that you are pretty sure is going to be the new governor of Utah. Well, I looked at the uh, 2016 Utah gubernatorial race, which was actually uh, Governor Gary Herbert against my former boss Whoa. when I was a Utah computer programmer, Mike Weinholz, nicest guy in the world, but yeah. sacrificial lamb as a Democratic gubernatorial candidate in Utah. I think he got 28% of the vote. So you're guessing that the... the I am not guessing. <laughs> the, the Republican the, candidate. The Republican primary <laughs> is the general in the Utah governor's race. And so he, the the future governor of Utah, or when this show airs, the new governor the of governor Utah... The governor-elect, I guess. Um, ...is a, an omnibus fan, a futureling. He is. And he posted sign, uh, pictures of his campaign signs, and they're fantastic. They're in the shape of the state of Utah, and they're green and yellow, he, colors we said... Had no place in politics. Utah has rectangle uh, privilege. They can, you know, a lot of states, you cannot make your sign the, sh- the, sta- the no. s- shape of Delaware. Too many cuts. Or Michigan, for example. But Utah's perfect. Yeah. Uh, yeah, they're very nice signs. But but I, the signs didn't help. Didn't help. They're, they're great, though. They look good on the wall if you're a Republican. But isn't that weird that seeing a name like that can just change your, can just change your actions? You know, that I'm more likely to buy... Uh, Coke than Pepsi. If I've seen the word Coca Cola more recently than Pepsi Cola, and and then I will create a little story for myself in in hindsight, explaining how it was actually the right and the motivated, the well motivated choice all along. But in fact, I'm just a series of stupid firing um, hormone squirts and synaptic zaps. It's what advertising. It's the it's the whole game, right? Why would I watch? puppies play football during the Super Bowl. Why, you know, why, why do I care who wins the Bud Light Bowl? Mm-hmm. But when it's time to get, you're walking down the aisle at the grocery store, you're like, look at that refreshing Bud Light. I almost think the Batter-Meinhof phenomenon is more uh, sinister than the Batter-Meinhof gang. In this situation, listeners of this program, Futurelings, who had only just heard of the Batter-Meinhof gang last week, have now experienced the Bader-Meinhof phenomenon. Personally, we've just delivered an hour of Bader-Meinhof phenomenon to you. What do you think? How do you like that? How do you like them apples? Yeah, put that in your pipe and smoke it. And that concludes the Bader-Meinhof phenomenon. Entry zero eight eight MK one four seven two. Certificate number 
1-800-646-8846 in the Omnibus. Futurelings, in the unlikely event that social media still exists in your era, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram are archived at at Omnibus Project. Our handles were at Ken Jennings and at John Roderick, and I'm also on Instagram under the same name. Our email address, which was a popular form of written electronic communication, was <laughs> doing a bit. the Omnibus Project at gmail.com. Uh, please enjoin the futurelings in one of your uh, your uh, collective insanities. If you want to do a sh- do a whole uh, collage of examples of the Bader-Meinhof phenomenon. There are thousands of nerds who want to join you in this celebration. I just realized we have opened ourselves up to hearing a hundred identical stories. Yep, we're going to hear just, it over just and over. as boring as uh, as mine about daughters of the dust about somebody who uh, who heard about uh, daughters of the dust. <laughs> Probably, I mean, we, we could hear about those, <laughs> but it's going to be much more likely that we hear about somebody who just learned for the first time about uh, bananas, mandolin picks, or the, the, uh, uh, here and there a juice harp. The Future Links Facebook page is really about um, this type of thing because what, if we talk about yes, uh, photo mats, all of a sudden the the page is flooded with photos of. Photo mats found in the wild, Quonset huts. And some people had them pre-existing, but I think some people are noticing new occurrences of Quonset. Mail trucks were the perfect example. Yeah. Everybody saw mail truck every day. Nobody thought about it. Uh, but now we get a thousand snapshots of them. Yeah. Um, you can mail us actual things at P.O. Box 55744, Shoreline, Washington, 98155. You want to see some actual things we yeah. got sent? Ken's got the mail bag right here, the big, big mail bag. Rich from uh, Wisconsin uh, sent us Hi, Rich. Uh, a response to our entry about Midwestern skiing that dates back to his junior year at Rose Hullman, mm-hmm. then an all-male engineering school in Terre Haute, Indiana, uh, which is a... I think you're going to enjoy this, John. This should be on your wall. Oh, a, come on. A ski Terre Haute Come poster. on, that's great. Don't wrinkle it, Ken. That's I am, a, I am being very careful. Look at that. He's really That guy's really digging into his turn on some flat-ass farm. Oh, I just got the joke. He's, it's the... Yeah, they've, the, they've tilted the camera to make it look like he's skiing Like downhill. a real dramatic run. There's a good joke here. It says, ski Terre Haute, site of next Winter Olympics, will be accessible by air from Terre Haute. The poster reminds you that Terre Haute is conveniently located between Aspen, Boyne Mountain, and Lake Placid, New York. It is. It's right in between. Boyne Mountain must be is a, a local Michigan ski mecca of less renown than Aspen or Lake Placid. Mount Wabash, elevation 360 feet. <laughs> From Highland Lawn Cemetery to the Milwaukee Railroad Bridge. This was some kind of a... And this poster must have been popular enough that it was a. They did a limited edition reprint of it later, which we have a copy of here to benefit the uh, alumni. Yeah, well, that um, that very much looks like ski posters of the nineteen seventies and early eighties. I had quite a few of them, and I wish I knew who sent us this because uh, there's no return name on the box. I, I thought there was a note on the box, but then I found out it was a note. To the U.S. Postal Service, to any postal workers who see this, I appreciate you. Oh, that's sweet. So they got a nice shout out, but but nothing to us as far as I can tell. Oh no, no, wait, there is a note. It's stuck to the inside of the. 
This always happens. Uh, I don't know if that bodes well. Why is it? What's what's it stuck with? Oh, it's actually it's stuck. literally stuck. I had to. I don't know if it was supposed to be stuck. One for each of you. Uh, Sarah. Is that a single bullet? <laughs> Sarah bought these at 3 a.m. when they were released at Target.com. Do you want to know? Can you guess what they are? Uh, edible underpants. <laughs> yeah, from our entry on edible <laughs> underpants. Oh my God. That's an agenda I'm writing show. that down right now. Ah, I'm getting hungry just thinking about them. No, Lily Pulitzer Porcelain Saucers. Oh, look at those. How nice. These are nice. Oh, this one even has monkeys. Hey, there's your batter, Meinhof. Wait, are they monkeys? Or is it just a curly cue that looks like a monkey? Her, she often has patterns that look like aminals. Oh, uh, yeah. I think this one's a pineapple and this one's a monkey. This is very aloha. Look at this pineapple one. Well, yeah. What, what, which do... Are you going to take the monkey and I take the pineapple or th the other way around? Yeah, I think you should choose because you well, probably have more Lily Pulitzer feelings than I do. Thank you, Sarah. These yeah, are these are lovely. I'm I'm glad you stayed up till three a.m. and got those, even though you never got much use out of them. Well, she probably got other things. How nice! So those are monkeys. Those are pineapples. Wow. I think they're monkeys. Yeah, they're, they're monkeys for sure. Meinhof. talk about monkeys, and a monkey saucer will manifest there itself. There it is, just like Carl Jung said. Snap. Um, if you're listening to the show and enjoy it, and have been listening for a while, and feel like uh, becoming one of our patrons. Please go to patron, uh, patreon.com slash Omnibus Project and contribute to the production of the show. And Thank we appreciate you. it very much. Thank you to those of you who do. To those of you who could but didn't, I do not thank you. Ken's a little tougher than I am. I still feel pretty good about you. Is that right? You're going to forgive them this one lapse? Yeah. I mean, I would prefer that you, that you dig deep and support the show, but I understand. I'm understanding about it. All the many, many reasons that you can't contribute to Omnibus. But, you know, I also recognize they're shirkers. You're the good cop. Listeners, from our vantage point in your distant past, we have no idea how long our civilization survived. We hope and pray that the catastrophe we fear may never come. But if the worst comes soon, this recording, like all our recordings, may be our final word. But if providence allows, we hope to be back with you soon for another entry in the Omnibus. <laughs>